NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is June 17th, 2022, and today we're talking with Pornsack Pichet Schott. Pornsack Pichet Schott was a Thai American rising star editor at DC's Vertigo imprint, where he worked on such comic perennials as The Sandman and The Swamp Thing. His books have been nominated for dozens of Eisner Awards, be it the award winning Day Tripper, the New York Times bestseller, The Unwritten or critical darlings like Sweet Tooth and Unknown Soldier. He left Vertigo to become an executive in DC Entertainment's media team where he started and oversaw DC TV's department. He is the author of Infidel, his first major comics work as a writer and his newest series, The Good Asian, which features police detective Edison Hart. I am your host, Tanya Baker, at the National Writing Project in Berkeley, California, and I am so excited to talk to Pornsack about his work today. This may be, I think it is, my first interview with a comics writer. Welcome, Pornsack. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on. That's great. Um, We're really pleased to have you join us. And before we begin, um, you probably know or may know that many of our listeners are um, teachers and, uh, and writing teachers, um, a lot of them. So let's begin perhaps by you telling us something about yourself. First of all, maybe a traditional um, introduction. Who are you? What do you do? And what brings you out to talk to the National Writing Project today? I mean, I have already introduced, said some of the things to do, but tell sure. us from your point of view. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Pornsec Pisha Choate. I'm Thai American. I write television and comics. And I'm talking to you today. Uh, you know, my, my, uh, my graphic novel series, my comic series, The Good Asian, was in two volumes. It's just sort, just sort of wrapped up. And I'm sort of promoting The Good Asian, which you can find in all bookstores and comic stores at this point. I am also going to join you in promoting this. I love this Thank comic. Or I- it is sort of between a comic and a graphic novel, isn't it? We can talk I about see that. The, yeah, I mean, to me, and I think this is the consensus, a comic book is if it has staples, a graphic novel, if it, is, if it has a spine and glue. So to me, they're all, this, they're all kind of the same. I agree, but I have to tell you that this book with spine and glue, a <laughs> lot of people on the internet refer to as a comic. Oh, well, I, and I'm very happy. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> I, I, I feel like a newbie term. in this space, so I'm like, I don't know. That's I use the term inter. I use the term interchangeably, That's and, and I, I I do think it also depends on how they discovered it. So if they discovered uh-huh. it in the original staples format, then it will always be a comic to them. Yeah. And if they discovered it in a bookstore, then it will always probably be a graphic novel to them. I I just feel like a lot of pressure has been lifted from me to like know <laughs> yeah, the difference. Yeah. You will not be judged. If, if you, you tell me they can be interchangeable, if they, you tell me that, I'm going to believe it. They can absolutely be interchangeable. Can you, um, we often ask somebody a more personal question about themselves yeah. as an introduction and um, because of our audience and because uh, you're going to interest uh, represent an interesting group of writers to them. Sure. Could you tell us about a favorite writing teacher you had? Oh, my favorite writing teacher. God, there, I've had a couple. Maybe my favorite was uh, the author Jay Canner. He wrote the novel Crazy Cat in the 1980s. He wrote a book called Great Neck, I want to say in the early 2000s. I actually got to work with him as his editor on a graphic novel called Aaron and Ahmed um, uh, for Vertigo, for DC Vertigo. 
Um, he's one of my he's he's one of my most influential writing teachers, and I think the 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 piece of writing advice that he gave me that still sticks with me to this day is that I was in a writing class with him, and he just sort of says like, eh, I don't know about these how useful these writing classes are because you know at the end of the day when you're giving someone your notes, all you're really saying is what you would do if you had written the project, and that's not really the point. But we do this anyway because if enough people say they would have done the same thing, then maybe you should listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that was a great perspective on getting notes and all that. It's a, mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why you should never, when, when you're starting out, <clears throat> you should not get notes from one a single person. You should try to get notes from as many different people as mm -hmm. possible. And then as you develop, you start realizing who you can trust and you realize what quote unquote good readers are. And good readers are able to disassociate their subjective opinion from a more objective opinion and say, even though I think this, I've been doing this enough that I feel like a lot of people will say this, or maybe they will only say this and, and all that. And, and I think it's a little, it really kind of comes down to understanding there's a craft behind writing and there's, you know, there's subjective aspects to writing, but there's a craft behind it. And so an, you, you can talk to, you know, 10 people, but eight of you will give you the same response, uh, and even though you might not know why, and it generally comes down to the basic rules of storytelling. That's great. Thank you. No problem. Um, as I mentioned in my introduction, you are an incredibly renowned, you are incredibly renowned in the world of comics. Thank you. I am not very well read in comics. <laughs> I loved The Good Asian, volume one. I, um, and I'm excited to talk to you today about making comics. Sure. Um, and volume one, you can talk about volume two, but I haven't read it yet. So okay. don't, no spoilers. I won't spoil anything. Yeah, I won't spoil anything. <laughs> but maybe you should start for our listeners. Could you give a brief, no spoiler um, overview of The Good Asian? Sure, sure. It is, uh, it's a, The Good Asian is a genre I kind of made up called Chinatown Noir. It's a 1936 detective story in the style of Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe, featuring the first generation of Americans who grew up beneath an immigration ban, the Chinese. And it follows Edison Hark, uh, one of America's first Chinese American detectives, as he travels to San Francisco Chinatown for the first time and in the uh, tradition of classic noirs is searching for a missing girl, stumbles upon a murder, stumbles upon a conspiracy. And it's really <clears throat> kind of about, you know, exploring what it was like in the 1930s for Chinese Americans to grow up where an immigration ban came of age, where an immigration ban was the only thing, of their time was the only thing that they knew. And it, it strives to be sort of a classic noir mystery, but also uh, historically accurate. And I kind of spent years sort of doing the research to make sure it was historically accurate. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that later. I love it. Um, but first, maybe some just more general information sure. about making a writing a comic book. So um, the big question, which is maybe too big, is how does one make a comic? Where, like, where do you begin? Do you begin with words or pictures or a combo? Like, how does it, this happen? It's a good question. And in, 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 a, in a way, there's, there's two uh stages to answering that question is first like how do you put a comic book together and that is like how do you find a team and how do you find a publisher and all that kind of stuff and then there's the actual mechanics of okay once you have all those things how do you actually start writing an actual comic and you know part of being a comic book writer it's a little bit like because you, you're not doing it alone there's a little bit of being a producer sort of involved and that means finding an artist 
And, and it's different for different people. Some people find artists online and they go through Reddit and Twitter and like and sort of scour for that. Um, I started off as a comic book editor. So I have a lot of friends in the comic book community. And most and most importantly, most a lot of my friends are fellow comic book editors. So what I generally do is when I have an idea, I go out to my friends who are fellow comic book editors and I say, hey, I have this thing. Um, I'm thinking about an artist like this for it. And my editors are have, have had their boots on the ground more recently than I have. And they'll be like, love the idea. I think we can do better than that. That artist is great, but I think we can do better than that artist. And then we start searching for the right, right artist. And from there you find, you know, usually the artist works in black and white or the production time of a comic means that they can't do a book in color at the speed that they would want to. So we bring in a color artist for them, a colorist. Then we bring in a letterer slash a designer to help sort of design the book. And I always sort of, you know, my first person I usually go to is an editor. And, and then we kind of have a, our team. And, and the way I go from there is I sort of pitch it to different publishers and Image has been my publisher of choice for the past two books. Mm -hmm. And so once that starts and I have sort of the team together, then it is the, the actual sort of writing it. And, you know, it does all start from me. I write a script. It looks a little bit like a screen. It, it looks like it's a hybrid between prose and a screenplay in the sense of it, uh, you know, it breaks down the action page by page, panel by panel. And, uh, and a lot of times what I'm doing is I, I am art directing on the page a little bit. I try to, once I know who the artist is, I try to write to my artist's strengths. I mm -hmm. art direct on the page with the caveat of, this is always meant to be a springboard. This is to give ideas start discussion, not stop discussion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do whatever you want, but just know this, in my mind, this is what I'm seeing. And they'll usually come back with layouts, like little pencil sketches of like how they see the page to look. And I'll be like, this is great. And most of the time it's great. And occasionally there'll be things like, actually this sequence, you know, it means a lot to me the sequence works this way, or it, it, it has this very specific function for the sequence to work this way. Can we move it closer to that? And it's always sort of a discussion. And so me and specifically Alex, you know, we've become very good friends. We talk all the time. We're talking, even the book's over, we still talk on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. And and we're always talking about like different things to do with the book. It's what does he like? What do, what do I like? And the more we get to know each other, the, the easier it is and the more comfortable we feel like taking chances around each other. So you sort of anticipated my next question, uh -huh. which I, when I looked at the title page of this book, there were like eight people. Yep. And yep, yep, yep. I mostly, I spent a lot of time talking to novelists and sometimes picture yeah. book writers who might work with sure. like an illustrator only. But so I wondered, because also you work in TV, is writing a comic book, do you think more like producing a television show or more like writing a novel? Well, so Why I do. do think that? <laughs> I have to be, I've never actually written a novel myself, so I mm -hmm. can't actually speak with authority what it's like. To write a novel there is definitely a lot of overlap with sort of working in tv in the sense that you are i'm coordinating with a bunch of different people now in theory the editor my editor is an enormous amount of work on on, on my on our books but because i used to be a former editor i like being part of the editorial process i like being part of art direction i like talking to my colorists i like talking to my letter it's part of you know there's an analogy comic book uh writers use a lot that you know writing a comic is like playing an instrument in a band that it's just you kind of everyone just kind of riffs off of each other and you know and that's kind of what I do I lay out I lay out a beat someone plays an instrument over that <clears throat> someone else plays an instrument over that and I kind of change what I do based on what they do and that's sort of really the magic of comics it's the it's the collaboration and so 
when things come back, it's never a hundred percent what I thought it would look like. And it, that's always a good thing. It's mm. always, it surprises me. It's always better than what I, I want it to be. And if it ever feels like it's veering down a path that it isn't, we set up a lot of, you know, a lot of checkpoints to make sure that it doesn't go off the rails and that the, the surprises are always good surprises. That's lovely. I was just going to ask you another question about your sure. artist, which was sure. like, well, actually, I answered my own question by going back to the text. I was like, <laughs> but is this really one artist? Because those chapter dividers seem really different. But each chapter in this yes. book, the divider is a completely different artist. Yes, yes. And that is from when the graphic novel was more of a comic, where mm -hmm. every comic had um, had two different covers to it. And so the way we did it is we had a regular cover artist who did all 10 issues. But then what I wanted to do, because there's so many great ones, it, I, the way I look at comics is comics for me is a way to work with old, or to have an excuse to talk to old friends and to make mm -hmm. new friends. And so the cover artist is, is an old friend. But what we tried to do was with every, diff, with every issue, we had an alternate cover that was done by different artists of Asian descent. And, you know, coming from China or Japan or the Philippines or, you know, or South Asia and, and just to, you know, just to showcase sort of all that different art. And, and for me, I set up the extra caveat of they all had to be an artist of Asian descent that I've never worked with before. So some I knew and some of his friends, but we never had an excuse to work with them. Brilliant. I'm glad I asked. Ah, that's amazing. So The Good Asian, Pointak, has received rare review, rave reviews. Maybe they're rare too, I don't know. Rave <laughs> reviews, both for the story and for its historical accuracy and social relevance. So I'd like to talk to you about both of those things, but I'd like to start with the story. Uh, this has been described as a smart, classic noir drenched in style and history, which was certainly my experience of it. Cool. Are you a lifelong fan or student of noir? And if so, what particular stories, books, or movies um, inspire you in this genre? It's funny when, when, I see, when you say lifelong. It's <laughs> that is like um, a big call. <laughs> it, 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 it's a big call. It, the, one of the things I found is I started off as a comic book editor. And as a comic book editor, one of the things I found was that I was kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. So like I knew a lot about different genres, but I didn't like go deep into many genres. And it wasn't until I really became a writer in earnest that I started to go deeper into, into interesting genres. So I've always been a fan of Ron. I don't know if I could be say like a lifelong, like mm -hmm. it's yeah. hard for me because I can think of so many people in my life who know these books in and out and know mm -hmm. every, like I'm not one of those sort of people. Mm -hmm. I've always liked it as, as sort of a, you know, a, a casual basis. Mm -hmm. but I'm not one of the ones who can tell you every <laughs> novel in a series and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then when, you know, I kind of got this idea for the book, then it was just like, all right, well, let's take what I know about the genre and go a lot deeper into it and explore it. And really, and, and to me, I kind of feel like, you know, part of writing these projects is having an excuse to read things I've always wanted to read and call it work, you know? So, <laughs> you know, so like then I really got deep into Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and Ross McDonald and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, so when I think of like the influence on it, on the book, like there's a lot of ham, I mean, 
definitely read a lot of Raymond Chandler, but the, the thing and the tricky thing about Chandler is Chandler, Chandler is such a pro stylist mm-hmm. that it, yeah. that, that, that if you try to channel that too much, it turns into parody very quick, tells it turns mm-hmm. itself parody very quickly. So I actually look to Hammett a little bit more and more the continental op stories where mm-hmm. there's a style, there's a, there's a, a uh, sharp style to that, but it wasn't as, as distinct as Chandler where it felt like, you know, where mm-hmm. it, the trap of getting into self-parody wasn't as, 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 as steep. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, you know, so as a result, like I love Red Harvest, um, you know, that book, uh, Dead Yellow Women was a short story that was set in San Francisco, Chinatown that obviously yeah. had a big influence. Yeah. Um, but that's it. There's a ton of Philip Marlowe stories. Uh, you know, Farewell My Lovely was one that I particularly loved. You know, Ross McDonald's has some great twists in there. There. So, you know, I read those Lou Archer books with that in mind. Uh, Walter Mosley, Easy Rollins, Devil in a mm. Blue Dress, that had an influence. There was a couple of, um, you know, there, there's a few sort of like Asian detective sort of novels. Uh, Henry Chang has the sort of Detective Jack Vu series. Leonard Chang has his Alan Choice novels. So they were all sort of stuff I picked up here and there. And even, and even as I've read them, you know, there's a bunch of other books. There's like the IQ series, but I didn't get a chance to read. And mm-hmm. um, a couple other uh, Juniper Song mysteries that I never got a chance to read. So there, there's, there's a lot that I don't know and I haven't sort of read, mm-hmm. but um, but part of doing the book was really giving my, myself an excuse to just like dip into all that kind of stuff. And there were definitely movies there too, you know, um, but for this particular volume, I w- the inspiration was very much the 1930s detective noir, and those existed mostly in the novels. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like the idea that since the book was takes place in 1936, let's have it riff off of what the noir looked like in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And most film noir is post World War II, so so I really kind of le- uh, leaned into the novels, which is one of the reasons why the book is dense the way it is. I kind of wanted as much as possible to give the impression of, even though you're reading a comic to make it feel like you're reading an old like pulp novel. Yeah, it, it great job. Cause <laughs> I you. read more of those than okay. comics. And I really felt that. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so I think you've sort of, you can say, I already answered that question, but <laughs> I wonder, um, I was wondering about like how, what made you, like did the idea come? Like what made you want to make new, noir in 2022 well I think for me it was uh you know I it's funny I self-identify as Thai American even though I'm I think a quarter Chinese on my dad's sort of side Mm -hmm. and and one of the reasons why I identify as Thai American is because growing up whenever my parents would argue we would be living in Thailand I spent five years living there and whenever we would argue about politics my, my mother who's Thai would usually win. And my dad would just kind of like, you know, in frustration be like, ah, that's a problem with you Thai people. And then she would be like, you're Thai. Like, and he'd be like, I'm Chinese. And he's like, you've never been to China. You don't speak a word of Chinese. Stop giving me this, you're Chinese. I'm, you're Thai. You lost the argument, just deal with it. And, <laughs> and so as a result, you know, we never really, you know, because my mother tended to win those arguments, we never identified as sort of Chinese in our household. Mm-hmm. And as I, in, we, the family got older as my father got older he started getting more into his Chinese roots and so whenever I would come home from college and visit he'd be watching a documentary about a Chinese dam or talking about this and talking about that about China and when he passed away in 2016 like part of me sort of processing that was to get into the stuff that he was sort of interested in and that was China and, mm-hmm. and the thing that surprises me the most was that you know I 
based on the trajectory I just laid out, you would think I'd get interested in Chinese history or Chinese mythology, but I ended up getting really fascinated by Chinese American history. Mm. And that's where I discovered the Chinese Exclusion Act mm -hmm. and, and the Immigration Act in 1924. And I was kind of stunned that as sort of like a fully adult Asian American man, I didn't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. And to the point of, I read multiple different sources just assuming I had interpreted it incorrectly mm -hmm. because I thought, well, surely if this really existed, I would have, I would know anything about it. I must be reading my original text wrong. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, you know? And mm -hmm. so that I, so that was fascinating to me. And it was fascinating to me because I do have this sort of pop culture adult brain. It, 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 I recognize that during the time where Asians were not, you know, the majority of Asians were not allowed into the country there was the archetype of the Asian crime solver of Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto and Mr. Wong Detective that got very popular, you know, throughout, through, from the introduction around 1906, specifically the 1930s, like Charlie Chan was enormous in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to me that that character was so popular during a time where Chinese people couldn't technically enter the country. Mm -hmm. And that's where the idea of, you know, using, taking an Asian sort of a crime solver, uh, archetype and saying like, what if we take, use the lens of actual history and sort of, and, and shine a light through the lens of actual history and say, and show what that was actually like and, or what that actually could be, what a, mm -hmm. what a crime, what that detective could actually be like. And it, it nor came very logically and very easily from there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, specifically because it was the 1930s and like detective noir, detective pulp noir, that was the genre at the time. So it was just like leaning into all of that. And then from there, it was just like, all right, if that is a challenge, doing the work to make it sure it's as accurate and as honest as possible. So everything that we do in the book kind of, you know, there's a historical precedent sort of for all of it. And the, 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 the mission for the book has always been to find truth where facts don't exist. And, mm. and which is to me what fiction is hopefully does. And so we want this fiction story to exist sort of between the facts and it doesn't contradict any of the facts that are out there in history. Um, and in, in the hopes of telling a story with that, then maybe there's some truth in, in the story that we're telling. Amazing. I'm gonna pull a thread from the beginning because sure. you said you spent several years researching. Yeah, yeah. You've talked a little bit now about your research process. Yeah. But um, I was pretty amazed at um, the, his, the way you've woven in historical facts into this uh, detective novel. And then when I got to the end that there were pages of historical notes, which uh, again, I'm not a huge comic reader, but it, I was surprised and delighted <laughs> to find them there. So um, uh, tell us, about your research a little bit maybe and how you wove that into story making and um, your decision to include historical notes. Yeah, so like for me, you know, it, it, it's funny, like whenever anyone asks me sort of what the research process was, I kind of have to like recollect what the research process yeah. is. And, and I, for me, it just comes down to understanding something. And so a lot of it is, it all starts with questions. And so it's just like, well, I don't understand this. Like, I don't understand the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I don't understand what it was like to live in the 19, like what was it like to, like to live in the 1930s? What is it like to live under the Chinese Exclusion Act? And there's not a lot written about all of that. So there's nothing written about all that. There's nothing written that connects those two pieces. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was, okay, 
let me do the research I can about the Chinese Exclusion Act to see what it was like under that shadow. Let me do the research I can about like what 1930s Chinatown might have looked like and what it might have felt like. And then I take those pieces that I can and, and the pieces of it that speak to me that are sort of exciting, they kind of, you know, there's a little bit of idea Darwinism that happens that like the stuff that sticks in your brain is the stuff that's meant to sort of be there. And, and what I try to do is if I find interesting facts, I, you know, tab on my bookmark them somewhere because less, it's more so that when I, when I integrate them in the story, I want to know I have, a, a, I can back it up with history. I can, I can pull something into history so I'm not editorializing. But for a lot of it, it is just trying to understand what it could be like, you know, um, it, it, and a lot of it for me, I'm a big believer that you can't author anything without authority. And so a lot of my research is to just make me feel comfortable with the material, to feel the authority that I can write about it, that I can say, that I can confidently say, this feels like, this feels true. And, and, and that's very subjective. Um, but, but for me, it's just, it's the, the paces that I need. I just do the research until I can sort of say one plus one equals two and two plus two equals four. Uh, and, and, and it's a very intuitive process uh, that happens there. And then from there, it's, you know, trying to figure out, I think the big work is, you know, they say, a director says that when you're directing actors, that casting is 80% of the job, 80% uh, of the job. And it's similar uh, for something like this, story design and casting in a certain sense mm -hmm. is making sure the genre fits the material and the themes of the material just right. Mm -hmm. So noir has a bunch of themes sort of already you know, presupposed into them. There's the bleakness of the world, there's frustration, there is, um, there, there is class conflict. And those are all kind of tied into the themes of noir. And so those themes worked well with a lot of stuff that I was sort of talking about. And then from there, it's about sort of taking the tropes of taking the tropes of noir and, and seeing like, okay, is there something I can do to add like a different context to it? Mm -hmm. So like even the, the opening of the book where we open with, um, we open with Angel Island, you know, mm -hmm. that's a trope from noir that noir actually is inherited from the Westerns of the down and out detective that you find in the saloon or you find like drying out after a bender in a jail cell. Right. Well, you know, we find our detective in, you know, the, uh, the detention centers as he's mm -hmm. coming in, but it, it, it harkens back to, you know, that noir tradition, that Western tradition of you find our heroes at, the, at his lowest point and you're right. surprised that this person is actually someone who's good at their job right. kind of thing. And a lot, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of, all right, we kind of know the touch points, the, the tropes that make this noir. And, and we also know as audience members that we enjoy seeing those tropes. So what can, you know, are there places in history where I can recontextualize those, those, those tropes? Brilliant. There's a brilliant opening and also it's a brilliant transition because I'd love to talk about Edison Hart. Sure. So um, he has been compared favorably to Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. Um, there's a, my favorite description I can't say on the air, but I loved it that he makes Sam Spade look, we'll just say weak, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my friend Diane gave you that one. I was like, brilliant. I love that. That is brilliant. <laughs> um, how did Edison Hark come to be? How did you create him? And maybe you have Edison said some Hark of things, but I'd love to like see how he lives with you. Sure, sure, sure. And it's a tricky thing for me to answer because 
I, I can't go into too many particulars because it ends up being spoilers for, okay. for, for the second volume. Yeah. But what I can say is I tried as much as possible to craft under historical precedents. And, um, and so the first Asian American detective, the first Asian detective in America was a Changaparna who, it was a detective in Hawaii. He was the inspiration for Charlie Chan. And, 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 and right now I'm thinking like what has been revealed in the first volume so far, so it's not to be spoilers, <laughs> but, but what, so Changaparna as a detective, what he was tasked to do was for all intents and purposes to be an undercover cop, that he would go into Chinese um, gambling and opium dens and because no one would expect a Chinese police officer. And he would go in there, he would scope out, you know, where the exits were, who the troublemakers were and all that. And he would come back and report back so the cops could sort of raid the place. And mm. that was what sort of the first Chinese American detective did. And mainland America wouldn't have a Chinese American detective until 1956. So Hawaii was the only place that you could find an Asian detective at that point. So Edison Hark is very much modeled after China Perna. Mm. Um, but, you know, what I tried to do then is to take the, our contemporary, and so much of the book is about using our contemporary lens of what we know about police reform or what we know about identity politics of what mm -hmm. we know about assimilation uh, and applying it to the characters at the time. And so, and so, you know, if you look at a biography as much as any little bits exist of Chang'e Perna, they don't talk about his conflict of how he must have felt doing the things that he did. And mm -hmm. so to me that I wanted to focus more on that. You know, and, and what I liked about that particular aspect of Chang's, uh, of Aparna's story is that it was in the, in the tradition of good genre fiction, they were internal things that were externalized and dramatized with high stakes. Mm -hmm. And I think as an Asian American, you find yourself, and any kind of immigrant American, you find yourself uh, torn between two cultures with your legs, mm -hmm. your, your feet in both worlds. And a lot of times those cultures seem to conflict. And as an immigrant American, as a second generation American, you know, you form your identity by forming what your relationship is to those conflicting cultures. And having this detective who, you know, is a person of authority at the same time being used against his own people and having to the push and pull that of, you know, is he more, is he has, does he, should he have more allegiance to the, the Asian aspect of his uh, Asian aspect of his world or the, the quote unquote American white aspect of his world mm -hmm. that felt like an externalization and a heightening of sort of everything an Asian American goes through. And so, so, so it was, you try to use all those aspects to sort of talk about something very internal and uh, a search for identity. Uh, I had some other questions, but I'm just going to jump to the last one, which is about okay. Edison. I sure. so instead of asking a question, I'm going to pose my own okay. thing. So okay. I, my question is sort of what's the essential characteristic of Edison Hark? But I'm going to say that um, listening to you talk, I feel like here's a guy who um, really wants to be honest and finds himself often feeling dishonest, even by not by his own actions, by the way other yeah. people view him. Uh, some people are so impressed that he yeah. is a, they either can't, can't believe it and think he's a liar because there would be no yeah. um, Asian cops or they are so impressed that he is, but the things that they are impressed with, he's always wanting to like tamp down because of, feels, yeah. because of the way his job 
puts him sometimes in conflict with his community. Yeah. Uh, so I would say like this essential thing is this sort of wrestling with what it means yeah. to be honest yeah. with him. Uh, what do you think? What, what do you think is sort of essential to- I, 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 I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, Edison Hark is someone who's constantly trying to do good and is constantly mm. compromised. Mm. And I think he's trying to figure out, you know, because of his compromise, um to what degree can any compromised person do good and and do the and do the right thing and that's sort of his constant you know the 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 big the 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 original sin that he made was you know it's the original sin that he made if you call it a sin it's just wanting to do a little too much you mm -hmm. know and then it took him down a path and and it's interesting like the thing that I like about Edison Hark, and it seems like this is what readers like about Edison Hark, is there are, there are readers who like him, there are readers who don't, um, but they all sort of find him compelling. And I think one of the reasons that you find him compelling is that even if you hate what he does, given the, the, the reality of the time, it's hard to say what other options he had. It, right. You know, you could say like, you shouldn't have done that. But then at the same time, you know, it's hard to say like, okay, great. He shouldn't have done what he did. What is, was his other choice then? Because it sounds like, the only other choice he had was to give up and not do anything at all. And so, but he didn't want to do that. And so it's a little bit of, and, I, and hopefully that is part of the appeal of the character is sort of this world of compromise that sort of all second generations Americans kind of have to live with as they're finding, as they're finding their identity. And as, as, they, um, as they try to find their place in the power structure of a world that's made, that was originally constructed by people that don't look like them. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I feel like maybe this is also listening to you talk. I feel like I am a person of a certain age and living in a time where um, compromises really become a dirty word. Like you have to be perfect on every front to be an yeah. acceptable ally to anything. And I think um, like sort of raising up a person in a different time, so trying so hard and being so conflicted is um, really draws attention to the context yeah. in which we all live and try to do our best. Yeah, I mean, I think like, and there's a line in the book where I think Hark says something like that, where it's just about like, you have to feel sorry for people who, who try to, who, who, who chase after perfection mm -hmm. because it, perfection always comes with sacrifice. And it's something that he knows, he knows very well, you know? And, and I think there is, I, you know, Hark was very much made in, reaction to you know sort of the model minority myth and mm -hmm. and and that's where the title of the of the book comes from and mm -hmm. part of it was the desire to make an asian protagonist that was flawed and that was complicated mm -hmm. you know so many um protagonists of color have to be perfect and right. that comes with that creates problems in and of themselves yeah and so 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 yeah so you know there is a lot of it I'm not gonna say it's a problem with perfection as much as sort of the discussion that um, that 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 arises from the need to be good, the need to be perfect, and and what its toll may be. And you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm right in saying this, maybe I'm wrong in saying this. It's not trying to pass a judgment on any of that, but it is trying to just sort of pull that thread and sort of see yeah. what the consequences are. Yeah. I love I love this character. I love this book. Thank you. Um, so I asked you a little bit earlier about your research, but I would like to just ask you a couple more questions about sure. history and this book in history and its social cultural yeah. relevance today. Yeah. We've also touched on that, but um, did you, 
maybe you've already answered this question too, but did you intend to make a comic that would push people to talk about its importance historically and culturally? Because a lot of critics are talking about that. Was that your intention? Uh, the intent was definitely, I think the intent for everything I write is to start a discussion and mm -hmm. for there to talk about a thing that I don't feel like is being talked about enough. And for particularly for this book, it, the, the, the conversation I wanted there to be was about Asian American history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I feel like you see a lot of, I, I think when people think about Asian Americans, they instantly think about Asians and they think about Asian history and all that. And I didn't see en enough out there that specifically was centered on Asian American history. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a genre piece because genre is my first language that mm -hmm. talked about Asian American history and, and, and to start conversations in that way. And and that partly is the histories in terms of these are the facts and the conditions that you don't know, but it's also the things that resulted from that history, the conflicts, mm -hmm. the themes, the questions, that unique aspects that come from there. So it, the way I look at volume one and volume two, volume one is meant to sort of introduce you to maybe a history you weren't aware of. And volume two is less about giving new historical facts and more about all right, these are the questions. These are the, con you know, the, the conflicts in terms of identity, in terms of, you know, the compromises and, and the very unique um, dilemmas that I feel like that comes with sort of being an Asian American that comes based upon that history. And so for me, that was the discussions I sort of wanted, I wanted to have. Uh, and that's the hope, the, the hopes I wanted to, uh, hopes I wanted to inspire. And, and if the very least, that if none of that happened and my readers now, the readers of the book now know that there was an immigration ban coming in on Asian mm -hmm. people from 1882 to 19, you know, 45 and, and really to 1965, then I'm happy with that as well. Uh, when you talk about book two, I'm just like, oh, okay, now I know how I'm spending my Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, you've already actually started to answer this too, and I'd like to unpack it a little. You've sure. already said some people love him, some people hate him, but yeah. people find him compelling. Do you have a sense of um, particularly what it means, what Edison Hark might represent or mean to Asian comic book fans? It's hard to say. I mean, I've had a chance to sort of talk to them, meet them, and sort of talk to them. I, uh, a lot of the one, a lot of the people. Are really grateful that he exists and certainly the ones that sort of hit me the closest are the people who said i never thought i'd be able to see something like this mm -hmm. and 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 that's certainly the reason why i wrote it but there's something about just hearing someone say it to you that yeah. definitely sort of strikes a, a core a chord with me and definitely makes an impact with me and, and and so i can't sort of tell you in the macro what asian sort of you know audiences sort of think of it but but i do know i've had certain people that are gratefully exist and, and specifically didn't think it would it, it, could, it could exist yeah and and it's been grateful to be part of that with them and i'm going to ask you next last yeah. my last question yeah. is going to be about what's next for you but i wonder what you would like to see next in comics and graphic novels are there other black holes or blind spots in the comic world and if so who or what do you hope it within this genre to see yeah you know, it's funny, I, it feels so weird to quote uh, a critic who uh, was, was, was reviewing the book itself, but there was one review of the book where, he, where the reviewer said something that really struck a chord with me is that the book sees representation as the beginning of the conversation and not the mm -hmm. end of the conversation. And I really like that a lot. And it, because I like this aspect, this 
it does sort of feel like that's the next conversation we have. It's just like, all right, let's stop patting ourselves on the back that these characters exist in these stories now. And let's sort of say, what are the res results of these characters existing in the stories? Like what new perspectives does it give us on us, on the stories, them on the genre themselves, on, on the country and the world that we live in? Mm -hmm. And so that is the thing that I, you know, there's a lot of stories that I don't have uh, the authority and, and the experience sort of to tell, mm -hmm. you know, like I am, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, being Asian, I'm fascinated by colorism and, you know, you see it in Asian communities a lot and I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, you know, and I'm the, not the person to write about this, but I'm fascinated between the relationship, for example, between white and brown Latinos and that doesn't really get talked about. Mm -hmm. And, and I've asked sort of, and actually I have one Latino friend recommend one book to me that was very, very recent, but I would at, ask, uh, Latino friends to talk to me about it. If there's anything I could read up about it. And they would say, there's nothing really, mm -hmm. but that is something I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what colorism looks like within communities of, yeah. within communities of color, um, you know, so I would love to see more of that integrated mm -hmm. in sort of these stories. Uh, but but honestly, it's and this is something these stories have been around for a very, very long time. And part of their durability is the fact that they can be updated. And mm -hmm. and so for me, it's just the continuing effort to sort of update these stories and to reflect the world that they are living in. And that's mm -hmm. certainly what the good Asian tries to do. It takes a contemporary understanding of police reform and, and racial identity mm -hmm. to, and applies it on an old genre to sort of give it, in the hopes of giving it some new life and, mm -hmm. and give a new perspective on it. And, and that's kind of what I would love to see, like in all sort of genre work, right. is sort of acknowledging these different perspectives as a way to, you know, use them to explore new things. Yeah, not to check a box, but to open some yeah. conversations. Exactly, exactly. Because yeah. I, because I mean, because that's the tradition of genre. You right. know, genre it was always meant to, you know, you know. I started my first book was a horror uh, book, and I think you see that more clearly in horror over the past hundred years. The different yes. ways writers and filmmakers and directors <clears throat> and storytellers have used contempor the, the contemporary pop culture to make horror more relevant and also cut close, cut closer to the bone. And, uh, and I feel that way for all genre, uh, genre work is whatever you can do to make it cut closer to the bone and, and make, and you do that by making it more reflective of the world that you live in. Yeah, I added that book to my list too. Also rave reviews. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so we're gonna end here. I love The Good Asian Volume 1. I, listeners, you should go out and get the, these two volumes. I think I've got the second one coming for the weekend. I'm very cool. excited. Uh, so if we do love this work, Pornstock, what's next for you? What should we be looking for? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I, I have a new book coming out, a new comic coming out, but I can't talk about it just yet because it hasn't been announced. Um, I, I the, honestly, the best place to do is to follow me online on Twitter, which is real underscore porn sack and Instagram, which is real underscore P sack. And that's where I keep announcements and sort of all my upcoming stuff. But I do have another there. I do have a new comic coming out I, I, late this year and sometime next year. I am working on a sequel to The Good Asian. So that is coming eventually. Um, I, I just need to make time to do a bunch of research and write it, <laughs> um, but that is eventually coming. Uh, but yes, un unfortunately, uh, the way it always seems to work is as soon as I finish a project, um, I'm working on the next one and it's a chunk of time before I can talk about exactly what it is. I'm yeah. 
Well, you share that with many writers. We've heard that yes. story before. So we'll <laughs> end by saying uh, we've been talking about The Good Asian. It's available through Image Comics and it is porn sack Pichet Chote. And um, we hope that you'll be interested in coming back and telling us about new work in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Thank you so much. Thank you. Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.